0: sleepcoolnow.com 1212.
1: This is hour number two of the World According to Zig podcast. My name is John Ziegler. I am your host. Our website is freespeechbroadcasting.com, where you can check out each and every one of the articles that I write for the website Mediate, which focuses on media criticism, which there is a lot uh, to go around these days and for good reason. So make sure you check out freespeechbroadcasting.com for that, as well as uh, some interviews that I do from time to time, including an interesting one on the Penn State case, which I did with a radio station in Boston this week, which I urge you to check out because most of the time when I do these interviews at this point, since the story is so dead, the uh, interviewer is someone who has caught wind of my work and thinks, wow, this is really interesting. I never... Heard about this side of the story or never thought about it this way. And so the interview isn't that adversarial. Like, for instance, I did one with uh, Glenn Beck's Blaze recently about uh, this whole thing. And, and that went very, very well. Uh, John Ziegler, I, I think he's fantastic. What an what a interesting mind he has. Glenn caught wind of it and, and said that he would... Like to revisit it in the uh, new year. I haven't heard back from him on that yet, but we'll see whether that actually happens. But the Boston interview to which I refer uh, was very adversarial, and usually adversarial interviews on this subject, you know, I get <laughs> hung up on, or end it end ends very quickly because the host has a meltdown and they don't know what to do themselves. Uh, That didn't happen this time. This was about an almost hour-long interview. Some of it does not deal with the Penn State case, which you might find interesting. But if you're at all remotely curious, go to freespeechbroadcasting.com and check out uh, the interview I did there. It also, by the way, deals with the uh, infamous 23-page Atlantic Monthly cover story that the Very famous, now deceased, having killed himself, writer David Foster Wallace did on me when I was at KFI in Los Angeles back in like 2004, 2005. So you might find that interesting as well. Speaking of the Penn State case, later on this hour, really looking forward to speaking with Ralph Cipriano, a Philadelphia crime writer who has helped bust open one of the major cases against the philadelphia catholic church that has turned out to be a complete fraud explosive testimony on friday further proving that it was a fraud even though one man died in prison two others are still in prison a monsignor is facing a potential retrial and a fraudulent accuser has gotten five million dollars and there are a lot of very similar similar circumstances and connections to uh the Penn State case and the the whole the whole Jerry Sandusky quote unquote Joe Paterno scandal. So, um, looking forward to that later on in this hour of the podcast. First, though, uh, I do the podcast obviously from Southern California where I live, and one of the things that um, drives me nuts among many things about uh, the whole global warming climate change deal is that. The MO seems to be if there's a problem that's weather or climate related, it's always to be blamed on global warming or they changed it to climate change because that's it's more difficult to disprove. And let's face it, the climate has been changing ever since the planet was created. So I got no problem with the concept of climate change. I just don't think man has a heck of a lot to do with it. At least there's no evidence of that. But what bothers me logically as a logical guy as opposed to what's become of the rest of the conservative world in the Trump era, but I digress. As a guy who's based in logic, what what drives me nuts is they'll say that something is as a result of climate change slash global warming. But then when that something stops happening, we never question our original premise. Like, for instance we keep getting told that there's going to be massive amounts of tornadoes and hurricanes because of climate change. That's always been the prediction. Yet in recent years, if anything, at least here in the United States, we've had a decrease in the number of tornadoes and major hurricanes. But to me, even more telling than that, is what's happened in the issue of drought, which has been big here in Southern California for the last several years, because no question about it, we have been in a drought. No doubt. Well, this week, in my view, after this week, we are no longer in a drought. Now, I realize that it depends on how you define drought. But this week, we got crushed. In fact, in Mammoth Mountain, 50 15 feet of snow, 15 feet of snow. The there there are certain areas that are 161 percent of normal snowpack for this time of year, 161 percent, even under the standards used by the climate people by the. The drought people, the, the government uses, even by those standards, about half the state is no longer in any drought whatsoever. And almost none of the state is in severe drought. And it's important to rain throughout the state, mostly in Northern California and snow in the mountains. The way that our water system works, which is incredibly inefficient, but the way that it works, it doesn't really matter that much how much it rains for instance, in Southern California. It matters how much snow we get in the mountains. That's what matters. And two years ago, very dramatically, Jerry Brown, governor of California, went up into the mountains and showed how there was almost literally no snowpack left. I think this was in like March or April. To illustrate just how dramatic the Drought was, and it was blamed on climate change, global warming, and we changed all sorts of laws and rules and restrictions on water use. All, all sorts of things got influenced by the notion that we are in a historic drought and it's because of climate change. Well, wait a minute, hold on. Now, granted, who knows what's going to happen this summer, but as of right now, there is no concern about water in California. None. And you know why? Because this is all cyclical. Cyclical. It's all cyclical. When you have an area, especially in Southern California, where the rainy season is remarkably short, just by the nature of the law of averages, you're going to go through periods of drought because... If you miss one or two rainy seasons, which is incredibly easy to do, guess what? You don't have much rain at all for a couple of years. But eventually, that's going to turn around, especially when you're a body of land that's next to an ocean and the weather moves from west to east from the water over your landmass. And so it just it drives me crazy that we never go back and say, "Well wait, wait a minute, hold on. You were telling us this was because of climate change, global warming. Now that it's gone, doesn't that mean there's no climate change, global warming?" Oh, well, I'm sorry. that, I, that would be too logical. And by the way, this is not the only situation this has happened. In fact, during the Obama administration, this has happened twice before. Florida. Although, technically, this might have been Bush and Obama. But Florida went through historic drought in the mid-2000s, like 2006, 2007 area. Well, why did that happen? That happened because they went a few years without a hurricane. By the way, they're starting to get a little bit of, not much, a little bit of drought now in Florida. Why? Because they only had one major hurricane this past year. That's the nature of Florida's weather. They get their rain a lot of it, through hurricanes. Similarly, Texas. Texas went through a massive drought during the Obama administration, and now that's gone. Why? Because they got crushed by rain last year. Again, it's all cyclical. And by the way, interestingly enough, I, and I did the research, to the decimal point, the amount of the United States that is not in drought, which is over 50%, I think it's like 58 point something, is exactly the same today as when Barack Obama took office. Exactly. By the way, this is a guy who among his promises was that that he would stop the rise of the oceans. (laughs) Well, the reality is not one thing has changed. Why? Because he has no control over it. Government has no control over it. Man has no control over it. It's all, or almost all nature. I mean, do we have maybe some influence on the margins? Yeah, I'm sure we do. But there's not much we can do about it at this point unless we completely change our our lifestyle, and I'm not sure it's really worth it anyway. I, I, I fail to see the, the massive negative impacts. The reality is if the globe is warming, guess what? The globe is still too damn cold. And by the way, it's not only just been rainy this and winter in Southern California. It's been cold by comparison, not like it is the rest of the country. I get that. I'm not bitching about it, but it's, it's been the coldest I can remember having lived here in 13 years. So um, that's that. Now, moving on to um, speaking of other issues in Southern California, the San Diego Chargers announced this week that they are moving to Southern California. Well, they're already in Southern California, but to Los Angeles specifically. And I found this interesting on a couple of different levels, mainly because they screwed it up so incredibly badly. And I'm not just talking about the fact that they released a logo <laughs> that looked like it was a ripoff of the, um, you know, of the Los Angeles Dodgers. That that's the reality. I mean, they they just was a complete ripoff. And then they changed it again, and that got mocked on social media. And it's amazing to me how these big organizations oftentimes can't even get a damn logo straight. But what I found more interesting was the San Diego Chargers become the second team to move to Los Angeles to eventually move into this massive, tremendous, state-of-the-art stadium in Englewood, Los Angeles, following the Rams having moved from St. Louis. But they could not have possibly done this in a worse fashion. Had San Diego decided to do it last year with the Rams, in conjunction with the Rams, then they would have been on equal footing with the Rams. They would have been coming to Los Angeles with the Rams, and they would have been co- or at least perceived as co-partners. In fact, they might even have had an advantage over the Rams because at least their games have been shown in the Los Angeles market a lot for the last however many years because They're in Southern California. They're in San Diego. And the Rams have been playing in St. Louis with no real connection to the Los Angeles market for for several decades. Well, they blew that because they still thought they might be able to finagle a stadium out of San Diego. They failed in that way. So now they come in as the clear number two into Los Angeles. And not only that, they're not going to play in the interim before this tremendous, allegedly tremendous stadium is built at the L.A. Coliseum. They're going to play their games at a tiny soccer stadium in Carson, California that can barely hold 30,000 people. It looks like a glorified... I mean, literally, there are high school stadiums in places I've lived in Ohio that are probably more suited to football and more spectacular than what the the now Los Angeles Chargers will be playing in for the next two years. Two years. That's a long time. Two years in Los Angeles. This reminded me of Ted Cruz's endorsement of Donald Trump, which could not have been more poorly timed, more poorly thought out, could not have been done in a way which was less advantageous. Although Cruz got incredibly lucky because Trump ended up winning. Had Trump lost, Cruz would have been in just a world of hurt for the rest of his life. At least now he's gotten a, uh, you know, he's he's somehow connected to the president. And there was a story out this week that somehow Trump and Cruz are, are somewhat buddy buddy, and that supposedly Cruz was sort of offered the Supreme Court slot, which I don't frankly believe. But but my more, my my major point here is here's a situation where had you jumped on the bandwagon at the beginning and just ridden it and sold out like San Diego would have to come to Los Angeles you'd be in a far better position today you'd still have lost your dignity but at least you'd be in a more advantageous spot so the Chargers I I think um, really blew it here and I I just don't see how Los Angeles who couldn't support an NFL team in a completely different era. When you think about it logically, I know logic shouldn't count anymore, but Los Angeles lost both the Rams and the Raiders. And since that point, the population has gotten far less white and far more Hispanic and not richer, probably poorer. So that's how the demographics have shifted since the time when we could not support either the Rams or the Raiders sufficiently. So now you're going to add during that time period a whole bunch of people who historically have very little interest in NFL football, most of which, most of whom don't even speak English. And now you're going to stick two teams back in that city. That just doesn't make any sense to me from a financial standpoint, long-term, especially when neither franchise looks like it's going to be a a major winner, which is all that really matters in Los Angeles. Speaking of football, you wouldn't know it because we've already forgotten about it, even though it was only a few days ago. It might as well have been years ago. College football held its playoff championship game this week. And um, as I predicted at the beginning of the year, Alabama was playing in it, and the team I would have thought had the best chance to play against them, although it would have given the winner of the Ohio State-Michigan game a pretty good shot. I was wrong about that. But the team that did play them was Clemson. Clemson ended up upsetting Alabama in a really good game, but in a way that, talk about illegitimate, since that seems to be the word of of the weekend, thanks to John Lewis calling Donald Trump's election illegitimate. I'm not a big Alabama fan. I respect them for what they do. And how good they are, but in my view, Alabama got completely jobbed. They got robbed. The last two plays of the game were a bullcrap pass interference call that should never have been called under those circumstances with incidental contact. If the guy doesn't fall down, the receiver doesn't fall down, no one throws that flag. And then on the next play, it's an obvious, clear, illegal pick. It wasn't even close. In fact, the quarterback, from Clemson referred to it as a pick play, which is illegal. And while there was some minor discussion of both of those calls, I was amazed. Almost no controversy. I don't have a good theory as to why. When you consider all the analysis that gets done on college football, you know, in all sports, hundreds, if not thousands, and thousands of hours of television analysis, previewing games and talking about who will be the team that will play for and eventually win the championship. And here we have the championship game and it's all this buildup and it comes down to a play that's complete bull crap. And there's almost no discussion of it. None. I, I I think it was mainly because the media liked the narrative that Clemson upset Alabama. They were a little bored with Alabama. It was an upset. Deshaun Watson, the quarterback from Clemson is a, star in the making, and no one really wanted to get, you know, no one wanted to poop in the punch pole, I guess. It didn't make any sense to me because I thought Alabama got jobbed. And, by the way, not only does the controversy get almost no play, Clemson winning got almost no play. I don't know. Maybe it's just me because I'm not seeing anybody else comment on this. But I am amazed at how little staying power – Sports victories have in this day and age. Take Villanova winning last year's NCAA basketball championship. Incredible story. The last few seconds of the game were the greatest I've ever seen for an NCAA national championship. I mean, it couldn't have made a movie that was any better. You had the coach, Jay Wright, with a spectacular reaction, upsets. Upset Cinderella story, major market Philadelphia, revisiting one of the most famous NCAA basketball championships of all time when Villanova beat my alma mater, Georgetown, in 1985. I mean, all sorts of ingredients that would make this memorable. Like a half hour later, it's forgotten. The next day, forget about it. You see nothing in the national news media about it. Same thing with Clemson. Nothing, despite the very dramatic and controversial ending. Our attention spans now are so short, it's always about what's going to happen next instead of what has already occurred, whether it's in politics or sports. And to me, there are numerous negative consequences to that phenomenon. I happen to believe that's part of what feeds Donald Trump because we never talk about what he's done because he's doing something new all the time. And he can always distract from his past sins because everyone's focused on what's next. And our attention spans are so damn short. And in the realm of sports, I think this is eventually, I don't know how long it's going to take. Eventually it's going to haunt sports because eventually people are going to think, wait a minute, all this effort, all this concern, all this focus, All this analysis, me going to all these games, paying all this money, spending all this time, all for what? Even when we win, no one seems to really care that much other than within that tiny little tribe. And that's really the the main reason why this happens. It's because of media fragmentation. There's no broadcasting. It's all narrowcasting. And therefore, nothing really appeals to the broader audience. Let me give you a really good example of how and why this has happened. So the national championship game is on Monday. It's an ESPN ABC property. In the old days, you know, like 15 years ago, 10 years ago even, a national championship game like that would be on ABC. There would have been, you know, maybe one of 10 to 15 networks that really had major audiences. And if it's on ABC, that makes it a big deal. Inherently, everybody knows if it's on one of the big four networks, that means it's important. Well, guess what else would happen? ABC wouldn't be airing The Bachelor, which is what happened on Monday night. So ABC's running The Bachelor in, com- in competition with its national championship game, which is on ESPN, which they own. Now, what does that mean? That means my wife and I don't watch the game together and it's much more difficult, much more difficult for me to even watch the game, to get permission to watch the game. And I'm lucky that I get to watch the game on the primary television in the Ziegler household, but she's not watching with me. Now, what difference does that make? That makes a big difference, not just in in my ability to watch the game, but in the impact that the event has Because, for instance, in the Ziegler household, it had zero impact. Not that it would have had a massive impact, but I can't even say, hey, honey, did you see what happened there? Isn't that amazing? What a game. She has no idea. She doesn't care. She's watching The Bachelor. So we're now so catering to the ardent sports fan or the ardent political person that anybody who's not in that demographic just gets forgotten. They're being placated in some other way, which diminishes the impact and the power of the event throughout the whole country. And eventually that has consequences. Because I honestly believe that a lot of sports fans are responding and reacting to events as if they are really important based upon the way things used to be. They're basing it on memories. It's not reality anymore. Even the Super Bowl, and I I use this example all the time because I think this is the greatest illustration of our focus on the future as opposed to the past. The pregame show for the Super Bowl is usually four or five hours. The post-game show, depending on how fast the network wants to get to their new show that they're going to promote after the Super Bowl to take advantage of the Super Bowl ratings, is about 20 minutes. So we have four or five hours of pregame show, 15 or 20 minutes post-game. And as a guy who likes to look at what's actually happened in the past and evaluate it and analyze it and try to learn from it, that's frustrating. It also takes away a lot of the fun of the whole deal. Now, speaking of college football, obviously – If you know anything about me, you know that I've spent way too much time and effort and destroyed way too much of my life and my career investigating the whole Penn State quote-unquote scandal, which I started believing five years ago plus that Joe Paterno, former head coach, now deceased, who got fired in November 2011 after Jerry Sandusky got arrested, that he had been railroaded, that the story involving him made no sense. After investigating it, for far, far, far too long, knowing more about the case than any human being ever should and anyone else does, having interviewed Jerry Sandusky in prison not once but twice for numerous hours, having gone on the Today Show to do interviews with Matt Lauer not once but twice, having written a couple of online books, having a a fake accuser (laughs) in the Penn State system that has been taping surreptitiously in a sting operation, uh, conversations with a... A major lawyer in the case, which have been amazing, although I've never released them for a number of reasons. After all this and many, 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 many other things that I'm trying to tell you about, I've concluded that the whole thing was a scam. That Jerry Sandusky, believe it or not, as insane as it sounds, was in fact innocent, and I'm positive of this. It's not even close. That's the most amazing part of the whole damn story. It's not even close, and if you know the basic facts of the case, You would agree with me, and if you're curious, just go to my website, framingpaterno.com. Not a conspiracy theory. In fact, I'm the only non-conspiracy person in the whole damn case. The framing was intended to be figurative, not literal. Framingpaterno.com. And the reason why I'm mentioning this now is that this week there was a major development in a case out of Philadelphia, my old hometown, involving the Archdiocese of Philadelphia, the Catholic Church in Philadelphia, where one of the most prominent and and most dramatic cases within the whole umbrella of the so-called Catholic Church scandal has been completely blown apart because we now know that one of the primary accusers in a case that sent four people to jail, one person died there, two are still there, one person, a Monsignor, has had his conviction overturned and is awaiting a potential new trial, all because of one guy who made the story up. And it's obvious he made it up. He got paid $5 million, but it's clear the story was made up. And what I find interesting is not, I mean, this is an amazing story in and of itself, but the similarities to the Penn State case are extraordinary. I couldn't make them up if I tried, including, by the way, that this fake accuser has the same attorney as the primary accuser against Jerry Sandusky. And that's not the only similarity they have. Their stories are almost identical and the reaction to them by prosecutors and by the news media has been almost identical. So earlier today, I spoke with Ralph Cipriano, who is a Reporter used to be a Philadelphia Inquirer reporter. He uh, writes for bigtrial.net. He has been investigating this for years. And there was a major development on Friday, further proving that this accuser was a scam artist and that the entire case was a sham and that the prosecutors should have known or did know that it was a sham. And so here's my conversation with Ralph from earlier today. Ralph Cipriano, welcome to the podcast.
2: Thanks, John.
1: Happy to be here. Uh, thanks for uh, doing this. I'm really looking forward to uh, hearing some of the the uh, nuts and bolts of this remarkable story. And I, I know we could talk about this for hours, but give our listeners just the the basics of what this accuser, Danny Gallagher, is his name? What mm-hmm. he alleged? What damage was caused? and how that story ended up disintegrating to where we are today.
2: Well, it's a pretty sad story involving a complete failure on the part of law enforcement and the news media. And uh, you might be familiar with that syndrome. (laughs) Yeah, a little bit. (laughs) Here's what happened. Um, it, It all started in 2005 where we had a grand jury report that came out about the Philadelphia Archdiocese. And it got everyone in town pissed off. Basically, what happened was we had uh, the, uh, the district attorney was able to get into um, the archdiocese' secret archive files. And that was basically a pile of documents that they kept in a safe. And they revealed all the sex crimes of priests in the Archdiocese that had been covered up since the 1940s. And when they really dug into it, into modern times, there were about 60 priests that had uh, molested and raped hundreds of kids, and none of it was within the statute of limitations. And everybody in Philadelphia went nuts. And um, a couple years later, we had a new district attorney come forward, and he knew that there was basically a lynch-mob mentality towards the Catholic Church, and some would say, including me, rightfully so, That's when our new unscrupulous district attorney, Seth Williams, uh, went forward with the prosecution, and he found two alleged sex abuse victims, and this Billy Doe kid, Danny Gallagher, was the star of it, that fell miraculously within the statute of limitations. And he went out, Seth Williams, the D.A., and arrested five uh, men, uh, four priests and a uh, schoolteacher, and we had a couple of sex abuse trials here. And this uh, Danny Gallagher kid, his wild story was this. He claimed that when he was a 10 and 11 year old altar boy at St. Jerome's Parish in Northeast Philadelphia, that he was viciously raped in three separate attacks by two priests and a school teacher. And uh, the details of it. Which he first told to his drug counselor and two social workers for the archdiocese were horrendous. And I, I don't know how graphic do you want me to get with this stuff, or do you want to break in, John, or but that's that's what happened. You can
1: look. This is a podcast. You can say whatever you want. Tell us the truth.
2: <laughs> well, uh, the truth doesn't involve any of what I'm going to tell you now because Danny Gallagher's story, you know, was revealed to be not true. But anyhow, he claimed in the first attack. after the 6.15 a.m. Mass, the uh, priest involved, uh, the the priest accused, Father uh, Charles Englehart, walks in to the sacristy and catches little Danny Gallagher putting away the sacramental wine after Mass and proceeds to uh, viciously anally rape the kid for five hours. He locks all the doors of the sacristy.
1: Five hours?
2: Five hours in this little tiny church and he viciously attacks and rapes this poor, helpless little kid. And at the end, he says to him, if you tell anybody, I'll kill you. And, and there's all sorts of, you know, slapping him around, vicious stuff. Gallagher then claims there were two more attacks. And he was tied up and punched and kicked, and his life was threatened. And this stories are, you know, the priest makes them, uh, you know, suck the blood off of his penis. There's one crazy story after another. And uh, you know they go out and arrest five guys, you know uh, these three alleged attackers, and the real the real capper, the cherry on the top of the uh, vanilla sundae here or whatever, is that they get Monsignor William J. Lynn, who was the Archdiocese secretary for clergy. He was the one who supervised all these abusive priests. He was the one who was supposed to keep them under control, and they got him for endangering the welfare of a child. And they put him in jail, and they put uh, uh, three uh, the three attackers in jail. And the only problem is that Gallagher keeps changing his story. So at first he told this story about all these three vicious rapes, you know, um, horrible, uh, vicious beatings, punchings. <laughs> He wakes up and finds himself tied up uh, with altar sashes and he's naked during one of the attacks. And he's punched and beaten and kicked. His life is threatened. One crazy story after another. Then, when he goes into the police and the grand jury, he totally changes his story. And every detail that I have told you, let me repeat that, every detail that I told you drops from his storyline. And he invents a completely new storyline about... Well, they made me do a strip teases for them and we engaged in oral sex and mutual masturbation. It's a completely different story than he tells the cops and the grand jury. And so, you know, we just we embark on this odyssey with this kid where his entire story unravels. But, you know, I'm the only idiot in town who's been covering it for the last six years. And, you know, where do I start? I mean the kid
1: Okay, well, but but it's unclear. It's yeah. important to point out there were convictions here, and in fact, uh, three people uh, went to jail. One of whom died. Two of her, two of whom are still there. Yeah,
2: four people went to jail. Right. Four well, people went well, to jail. Well, yeah. one of them
1: one of them got out because his conviction has been been overturned. Yeah, yeah. Oh, right. And so so currently there are still two people in jail uh,
2: yep. for,
1: for on the word of this Danny Gallagher uh, accuser that yep. to which you refer. One guy dies in jail because yep. of his accusations, and he gets paid $5 million in a settlement by the Archdiocese of Philadelphia, and you uh, are convinced they've been writing, and you are, you're right, you're the only one that's been covering this. You, you wrote, in fact, in Newsweek, this guy is a complete fraud. How did you come to to get on this story, and and what convinced you that the story of Danny Gallagher was, in fact, a fraud?
2: Wow. Well, look, if I back up to when these trials, when the grand jury report first came out in 2011, I was in a mentality like many other people. We wanted, you know, we wanted to see somebody pay over at the church. And so I, when I sat through these trials, I was rooting for the prosecution and I thought every one of these guys was guilty. A defense lawyer that I know whispered in my ear, I know you're never going to believe this that this kid made the entire story up. And so I started to check into that storyline. And the bottom line, to make it a you know, in a nutshell, if you're gonna believe Danny Gallagher, uh, you, you you could it's like believing the tooth fairy, because no matter what evidence you look at, if you look at all of the witness statements in the case, you look at all the documents in the case, you look at this kid's medical records, you get know, his drug arrest. All the evidence is against this kid. It's not like one fact is a problem. Every fact is a problem, and I'm even—I mean—I'm trying to think of where. Oh, let's start with the grand jury report because a person in the know called me one day and said, "Check out what the witnesses told the grand jury and compare it to what's in the grand jury report." And I found 20 different mistakes. I saw the district attorney's office that rewrote the testimony of grand jury witnesses to fit their storyline. And when the facts didn't fit, they rewrote them. And that shocked me. Uh, That was one of my first major stories about this, where I basically...
1: Let's be clear what you're talking about here. So there's a grand jury. And by the way, in a grand jury, for people that don't know, the prosecution runs the show. They, they, they They can come up with almost anything they want. And once no they,
2: defense lawyers even allowed to speak
1: right, and so then once they throw whatever they can against the wall, they took what was there, and then they even manipulate that. They exactly. put it into a report, and then once it's in a report, they can leak that to yep. to members of the news media who are morons, most of them, and who mm-hmm. and who uh, don't understand the nature of this, and all they care about is it's a good story and it has. The perception of credibility, because after all, grand jury sounds really important, right? And so, sure. and, and so, this is how these stories they, be, they they get on a life of their own. That yep. once they're in the mainstream, uh, then they become quote unquote true. And now, especially given the the nature of the allegations, I mean, nothing's worse than child abuse, especially when you're doing it on behalf uh, of God or the church. That, that there's a now, now, all of a sudden, your life is over as an accused. You you can't you can't even defend yourself because we lose our minds over this. Logic, and it, logic, and yep. facts go out the window. Right? Am I where am I wrong?
2: You're hundred percent right. And there's one added element to this: with the news media cooperating, the district attorney proceeded to hang these accused defendants out to dry publicly. But the victim. Uh, they gave him, you know, they called him instead of Danny Gallagher, he was dubbed Billy Dull, and they protected his identity uh, to this day. His identity is well. Let, let's talk
1: about that for a second, okay? The guy's yep. name is Danny Gallagher, and 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 at right? at, your, at the website that you, that I do you run it or write for it, the Big uh, yep. you, you, um, you, this is where you can find BigTrial.net dot net is where you can find most of uh, your reporting on this, and if you Google. Uh, this story in Newsweek, you did a, a great expose on it, but you use the name Danny Gallagher, which is 100% accurate. The Philadelphia Inquirer, in their story on this, what happened on Friday, which we'll get to momentarily, they're still referring to him as Billy Doe, right? Yep, a- and yep. Which, which to me, is outrageous on so many levels, but it's more than outrageous ethically, as you say, it protects him because yep. he, he can live his life with his $5 million with no real blowback because no one around him knows it's him. Yep, and exactly, 100% right. And by the way, not only does that make his life easier, it lets him get away with it because if everybody knew immediately that Danny Gallagher was making this accusation, people who were around Danny Gallagher back when he was at the time of uh, of these allegations would go, wait a minute. He, he never said anything about this. This doesn't fit with what I know. Or, you know, I know this about Danny Gallagher. And by the way, here's a picture of him giving the finger... In a yep. selfie where he looks like a a a, a drug a druggy uh, rapper, which uh, I've posted on on my Facebook and internet pages, which I think a picture does uh, tell a thousand words. Uh, and so, from an ethical standpoint, there's there's no rule, there's no law, there's no self
2: censorship lo- John. self censorship, voluntary by the media.
1: And what's motivating that, Ralph? Why is it that the news media self-censors when it comes to names that are in the public domain that it's perfectly legal to, to report on?
2: Well, I think, you know, the nature of sex abuse is so horrendous and so many horrible things have been done. You know, like many things, it started out as a good idea. Let's protect the victims, you know, these innocent children or former children or whatever. But, you know, there's no... When you've got a fraud, it's a problem. And and I must say, you know, the Philadelphia Inquirer has just done a horrible job on this. And the sad part of this is uh, I know these people because I used to work at that newspaper. And the editor of the paper, at a certain point, when I had all of these grand jury transcripts and the police records and all of this confidential stack of paper, in this case, you know, three feet high, I, w- I offered to the editor of the Philadelphia Inquirer all of this I offered to bring every document that I had in this case down to him I offered to take his police reporters around to meet every source I had and I said as a public service you know I, I'm a little blogger I've done what I can with the story but I'm not getting any results if I might you know we've got four innocent guys in jail as a public service you ought to look at this and they said thanks but no thanks and in every turn when they have had a choice to examine this story, they have chosen willfully not to, and they've, you know, time after time, they've reported this. You know, uh, the, the grand jury reported is honest and the truth, and this kid is a uh, is a true victim, and it's all it's all lies.
1: Boy, your story is is so incredibly familiar to what I have experienced on the entire Penn State story. Although I believe that the Penn State story, the resistance is even greater because of what I refer to as the steroids of the Joe Paterno firing, which invested the news media in a narrative that they will never give up. I mean, they are like five-year-olds with Santa Claus. Uh, you, you cannot tell a five-year-old that Santa Claus doesn't exist. They have no self-interest in that. And the, and the news media is the same way on, on the, these stories in general. I'm a little surprised that you got so much resistance on this was it because no one wanted to admit that they were wrong? Was it because of the nature of the allegations? Is it, is it because of the Catholic Church? What, I mean, that's pretty extraordinary for a newspaper. Here you are, a former respected Philadelphia Inquirer reporter. You're saying, look, this case is a fraud. Here's the proof. And they're not even interested in looking at it. What's
2: It's amazing, what, isn't what's,
1: it? What's going on there? It's
2: amazing. Well, i got to tell you, you know, I used to be the religion reporter at the Inquirer, and that's that's another story, but we won't go into that. But I'm saying there's a bias against the Catholic Church. There's a bias in, typically in the news media, there's a bias against religion and religious people, and certainly the Catholic Church. And uh, so you've got a huge bias there, and you've got a known storyline, you know, of these pedophile priests and their collars and these innocent children being raped. And it's a storyline that they fell in love with, and they can't see around it. And I understand it because when those trials began, I was one of the people screaming for blood and burying the archivist every chance I got. But when I looked at the evidence, it wasn't true. None of it's true.
1: Well, as if truth means anything anymore, but that's another story for another day. So so let's get to what happened on Friday. So you had already written extensively about this, and, in fact, in, in Newsweek, Although the the rest of the media hadn't really fully accepted this, is, is no. that a, is that a fair assessment? Right?
2: Yeah, and, and it's sad because two psychiatrists examined this kid extensively, and they came to the conclusion that he was lying. And and I must tell you before, you know, I just let me just give you a little bit of this stuff before this kid went in and told you know all the authorities that he been, had been raped at ten and eleven by these uh, two priests and the school teacher. In his medical records, and he's been in, like, 28 different drug clinics and rehabs and all, he told that he, he, he has a long history of lying to his doctors about sex abuse, among other things. And he told the before he makes up the stories about being raped at 10 and 11 by two school two, uh, priests and school teacher, he tells all his doctors he was molested. Take a deep breath now. Are you ready? Molested at six by a friend. Sexually, assault, uh, sexually abused at 6 by a neighbor, sexually assaulted at 7 by a teacher, molested at 8 or 9 by a friend, and sexually assaulted at 9 by a 14-year-old. He makes all those allegations. He tells his doctors he's a paramedic. He tells his doctors that uh, uh, there, there's so many other stories he told me. But anyhow, here's the real bottom line. He later admits, everything I just told you isn't true. It's all false. He admits that. This is the guy that is becomes the DA star witness. So well, how can you trust anybody like
1: that? Well, but of course, see the um, and, and I believe these people are terrorists. The the and, and they're probably well intentioned, but the the so-called child sex abuse advocates.
2: Oh, they're lunatics.
1: They believe that um, anything that you do to even remotely question an accuser is an attack on all legitimate victims. That's right. And and they also, by the way, believe that um, they've, they've created rules. The rules of engagement make it impossible to defend yourself because there is no such thing as proof of innocence. Everything is an indication of guilt. And I mean everything. In fact, uh, there are those who will tell you, and this sounds crazy, but I, I'm, I'm guessing you're going to back me up on this. They're going to tell you that that um, that this guy claiming that he lied about other sex abuse is actually proof that he was abused at other occasions because that's exactly right i mean that's how insane this gets
2: so they believe that when a person and i've talked about this but i've written about this they believe that when a person stands up and makes an accusation of sex abuse he suddenly sprouts a halo yes the heavens open above him yes and every word he utters is truth
1: that's a 100% right, especially when, in, the, in the Penn State case when there's $100 million on the table and, and the narrative has never been better for yeah. these people. But all right, so let's go. So with this background, and then there's, there's other elements of how the, and why this happened that I want to get to. But I also want to make sure that we, we get the nuts and bolts. So okay. so, so, so on Friday, there's a hearing. As uh, yeah. to whether or not this Monsignor Lynn, who had his prior conviction based upon the testimony of da- Danny Gallagher, uh, overturned on whether or not twice okay. twice okay oh, I didn't know that okay oh so, yeah so so he the, a hearing on whether or not he will be retried and in, that's correct and even a, though he served
2: thirty three out of his thirty six month minimum sentence and he spent eighteen more months on how to house arrest. The district attorney in this case, Rufus Seth Williams,
1: wow. wants
2: another pound of flesh out of this guy, and he wants to retry him. When the most he can get, the most is three extra months
1: putting wow. this
2: guy in jail.
1: Well, that's just Makes no sense. That's just stupid because when you're dealing with an accuser that's already radioactive, you would think they would just want this to go away i mean that
2: exactly okay but,
1: yep. but but let's talk about what happened because they they i don't know if they ordinary knew... what happened okay this is this is amazing especially it's even more amazing now that i've learned this because this makes no sense from a political right. standpoint as to why you would make yourself vulnerable to this so so a detective takes the stand not and... just
2: any detective but the detective who led the investigation The the guy who led the district attorney's investigation, the one who talked to Danny Gallagher, Danny Gallagher's mother, Danny Gallagher's father, Danny Gallagher's older brother, all of the priests and all the teachers at the school where little Danny claimed he was raped, this guy gets up on the stand and goes through a litany, a litany of, um, you know, of... Um, all the things he questioned Gallagher about the inc- factual inconsistencies in his many, many stories. And he says he came to the rock-hard conclusion that he didn't believe Gallagher because there were so many inconsistencies in his crazy stories. And when he confronted the kid time after time, the kid would put his head down and had no reaction other than to say he was high on drugs. And the detective knew he wasn't high on drugs when he gave these crazy statements. So it's just the, the specter of having the, okay. the lead detective for the DA's office cross party lines here and testify on behalf right. of the defense.
1: But he, he went further than that. He, he, because the, the essence of it, as I understood it, Ralph, was that he told the assistant district attorney that he didn't believe this kid. And yep. the assistant district attorney fought back and said, you're, you're killing my case that's correct and effectively ignored the detective and went forward with the prosecution of of these four people who um again it's important to point out two of them are still in jail and one is dead yeah. uh, all on the testimony of this Danny Gallagher and yep. and so all day yep. and and I guess my other than the outrage element of this I'm curious Ralph as to your theory on what's really motivating people here, because even though I'm a cynic, in the Penn State case, and I know you you know a little bit about it, and I don't want to get you too deep. I don't involved.
2: know it the way you know it. Uh, well, no one
1: ahead. no one knows it the <laughs> way I do it. I know it, but for better or for worse. But 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 my theory on that is, see see, yeah. I I think that people are way more dangerous when they. Th- think incorrectly that they are doing the work of the side of good yep. than then when they think that they're doing evil. You see what I'm saying? In other words, yep. the person who knows they're doing wrong, I think, is going to be a little bit less aggressive because at some level, they, unless they're a sociopath, they have some guilt. But the zealot who thinks incorrectly that they're doing this for justice— That's the really dangerous person because they're going to rationalize everything because, after all, they're on the side of good, and the other guys are the bad guys, and therefore, any tactic is appropriate. The ends justify the means. It doesn't matter because I'm doing good. In your case...
2: That's exactly what happened here in Philadelphia. Okay, that was
1: my question. So So tell me about that. Well,
2: we had uh, we had a, a group of prosecutors who decided that the Catholic Church had to be punished, and they were going to do it by any means possible. And so they found two guys whose alleged victims, whose stories were in this, the uh, statute, the, uh, the statute of limitations. And when the you know when, when the stories didn't fit, and they had to rewrite grand jury testimony, they rewrote it. And when they had doubts, and when the detectives Here's the other horrible thing about this whole thing, okay? If you understand the timing of this, this kid comes forward in 2009. In 2010, the DA's office decides they're going to run with his story. But little Danny Gallagher is in jail because of some drug arrest, and they got to bust him out of jail. He's there for a parole violation. And and they bring him down to the um, DA's office, and uh, uh, then they run with his grand jury report what the grand jury report, took the unconfirmed allegations of Danny Gallagher and ran with them 100%. It was two years, two years before the elapsed between the first interview with Gallagher where he made these crazy charges until they finally got around to investigating them. That's the timing. First, they published the allegations as right. uh, <laughs> the unvarnished truth in the grand jury report. Then they go out a month later and arrest these guys and hang them up to dry publicly, and the news media vilifies them right. while protecting the victim, right. the alleged victim. Yep. Two years later, they finally send Detective Joseph Walsh out to investigate this. And what does Walsh find? That he takes a dozen statements, every one of them, contradicts Danny Gallagher's crazy stories, including right. the one that he, the detective takes from Gallagher's own mother, his brother, and everybody else in the no, case.
1: No, we, we get the Gallagher's line, but I guess what I'm curious about, though, Ralph, is did the prosecutors, to make sure I understand you correctly, did they think that they were doing right, or did it, It's at some level, did they, they realize knew. they knew they, they were knew. doing wrong?
2: Uh, yes, uh, they knew. The famous quote I'll never forget, one of the defense lawyers who represented the guy, the priest who died in jail, he used to work in the DA's office, and uh, they were trying to cut a de- deal on the Eva trial because detectives and prosecutors in the DA's office knew that this kid was a liar, knew that those were innocent men, including this one priest, Father Charles Engelhart, who died in jail. And uh, they said, take a deal, take a deal. But the only problem was Englehart, who had never had a traffic ticket in his life, kept saying, I never did anything wrong. He right. wouldn't take a deal. He wouldn't take probation. Right. So he went to trial, and the crazy jury convicted him. But the famous quote I'll never forget is: uh, the uh, first assistant district attorney asked Father Engelhardt's lawyer, "Why won't your guy cut a deal? He can save himself." And uh, the defense lawyer says, "Here's our problem with the case: my guy is a paragon of virtue, and your guy is a lion's sack of shit." Right. And the, 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 the first assistant district attorney says to him. There are people in this office who agree with you, so <laughs> see, they knew.
1: Well, they knew. See, now that goes against my my being generous theory that they they just think they're doing it because they're on the side of good. Uh, you're, you're thinking that maybe there's something more nefarious going on. Maybe it's a mixture of of both, depending the on the ends. Uh, uh, the
2: ends justify the means. no I get, and-
1: I get that. But um, but you what you said you said something really important there though that really resonates with me. Because again, it you know, my prism is the Penn State case. My view of the Penn State case is that what happened there was the black hats and the white hats got reversed in the yep. first two days of the story, and everybody misinterpreted who the bad guys and the good guys were and And that's what, that you know that quote that you just provided is the perfect illustration of that. Wait a minute, we can't plead. Because we're innocent, you're yeah. you're we're the good guys. You're the bad yep. guys, but, be, yep. but largely because of the media and this public panic, uh, that all gets lost. Now, there's one element of this we haven't mentioned yet, and that, that is, is that is the the, uh, the the attorneys who made money from this, and, uh, and specifically yep. the, the the attorney for Danny Gallagher is a guy by the name of Slade McLaughlin. Now, yep. my interest in Slade McLaughlin is that Slade McLaughlin is the same guy who represents Aaron Fisher, who was victim number one in the Jerry Sandusky case and by far the most important accuser there, the only one who's public. He wrote a book. Uh, He's got a lot of similarities to Danny Gallagher in a lot of different ways. But not only that, but Slade McLaughlin's firm represents 12 Sandusky accusers, 12 of them. Tell me about Slade McLaughlin in this case.
2: Well, uh, Slade McLaughlin, you know, represented a guy that, you know, I mean, uh, if the detective who investigated him knew he was a fraud and I knew he was a fraud and people in the DA's office knew he was a fraud, anybody with a thinking brain evaluating his insane stories and all of the contradictions would have to conclude that this guy was a less than truthful uh, victim and, you know, you're stealing money here. So the way I look at it.
1: Somehow these guys also get white hats that they're yeah. that they're fighting for the victim when they're getting 40 percent of the payout. I mean, Slade McLaughlin made at least at least um, over a million dollars on the Danny Gallagher case, right? I mean, well, the, the, you
2: ought to give it back. I mean, you know, it's stolen money. I mean, the and the other the thing that really makes me sick. I don't know, John, how Penn State played out. You can fill me in, but they tried to keep settlement secret here and a few people in the know told me about it and i was happy to print the money what what he got but i mean uh, the secrecy on top of secrecy on top of secrecy we got a grand jury everything's secret there we don't reveal the victim's name all of the pretrial hearings are done behind closed doors we're sealing records left and right it's one level of secrecy on top of another and then we're going to have a civil case where this kid is looking to cash in on his quote-unquote, pain and suffering, that's secret, too. It's unbelievable.
1: Well, just so you know, in the Penn State case, I happened to have a conversation today with someone very, very much in the know uh, about the the fact that um, when there was concerns brought up about the incredible lack of vetting of the Penn State settlements, and trust me, there was none, uh, the Penn State response, get this, put your hat on for this one. The response. This was the official internal response. Well, look, we didn't need to vet them because their attorneys vouched for them. <laughs> I'm not crapping you. This, this Glasses. is a. That is a quote from the person Glasses. in charge internally. Yeah. That look, we may not have vetted this, but the, their attorneys vouched for the truthfulness of their story by the way wow. again the point is these people made millions millions and millions i mean Slade mclaughlin's firm had to have made and i'm this is just a pure guess off the top at least 10 to 15 million dollars from the penn state case uh with their 12 uh, accusers that they have on their website now
2: well let me
1: give you one fact about mr mclaughlin yeah you ready
2: Hit this me. should interest you
1: at the trial
2: uh, uh, one of the sex abuse trials. One of the defense lawyers, asked Danny Gallagher, I see Mr. McLaughlin in the front row. He's the most interested party in this case. He's been here every day. Tell me, Mr. Uh, Gallagher, who uh, hooked you up with uh, Slade McLaughlin? And yeah. his testimony was the DA. The DA. The DA.
1: Williams, uh, right?
2: Told my mom Seth that uh, you know, yeah, hooked me up. Hooked him up.
1: And so, now, so let's let's be clear about that. So you're talking about the D.A. Williams, right? Yeah. Uh, Seth Williams hooks the accuser up with his civil trial attorney. Yep. yep. This is before now, this is before there's yep. a conviction.
2: Yep. Now, McLaughlin denied that. Uh, but, uh, you know, there he is. He, then, you know, who lied, Mr. McLaughlin? Was it your client? Mr. Danny Gallagher, was he lying when he said that? Because well, why Gallagher would he? There would be, there's,
1: there's no reason for Gallagher to lie about that. I mean... <laughs> well, I mean, he lied about everything else. So. Right, but there, but there's no... There, there, those lies at least made some sense because they made $5 million out of it. I mean, he's throwing his own attorney under the bus without yep. prob- probably being yep. smart enough to realize it. Um, yep. Interesting. Okay, last last question for you. We're speaking with uh, Ralph Cipriano. Uh, you can find his work at BigTrial.net, uh, and if you Google his Newsweek story, you'll learn an awful lot about the background of this remarkable tale involving the Philadelphia Archdiocese and four people who were wrongly convicted, uh, one of whom died in prison, two are still in prison. Uh, one is potentially facing another trial after having uh, twice before uh, convictions reversed. And, and of course, it's important to point out that Danny Gallagher still has his, what's left of his $5 million, although based upon the photos I've seen of him, I'm sure he's <laughs> probably pissed most of that away at this point. How do we? uh, So how do we fix this? I mean, I don't understand.
2: I mean, mean we need we need we need a special prosecutor appointed. We need a special prosecutor appointed. I don't I don't know the logistics of this, John. uh, But I mean, you need a special prosecutor appointed to look into this whole thing from minute one and, and find out why the DA did what he did. You know, running with a witness that they had to know and knew. You know, half of them in the office knew. Well, not half, but. There's certainly people in that office that knew this kid was a liar. It's a perversion of justice to run with a lying witness and put innocent men in jail but, when but, you know it.
1: But can't we at least, And it, I mean, you you got uh, sh- reporting street cred. Can't you, we at least get some major media interested in this to put some pressure on?
2: Oh, my God. Uh, well, I once wrote a story about that for my blog. I For over a couple of years... As a little blogger, I went up and down the news media chain from the TV stations. How much time have you got for this? I'll make it <laughs> short. But all the t- I contacted the TV stations in my town. I contacted the Philadelphia Inquirer. I contacted Philadelphia Magazine. I worked my way up to the top where I was sitting in the office of a producer for 60 minutes yeah, and having uh, you a know, talk with Scott Pelling, one yep. of the 60-minute anchors. Yeah and they basically stared at me Scott Tully stared at me and said at this time there were two convictions in the case he says how do you get around that that's such a big mountain to climb yeah. you know? and so that was as close as i got but I, I call it the story that nobody wants to hear because nobody <laughs> wants to hear that a couple of you know that some priests were wrongly accused and one of these sainted sex abuse victims uh, is a freaking fraud
1: and a liar nobody uh, wants to hear it Ralph, you're living my life. I'm telling you, our experiences are, are, are Xerox copies of each other, and I, I think Danny Gallagher and Aaron Fisher are Xerox copies of each uh-huh. other. Um, and, and we'll talk more off the air about this soon. But thanks so much for your great work on this. Again, BigTrial.net. His name is Ralph Cipriano. I really appreciate what you've done and uh, and great work and caring about the truth. And let's keep in touch.
2: John, thank you. Uh, congratulations on your own unrelenting efforts.
1: <laughs> All right. Talk to you soon, Ralph. All right. right thank That's uh, Ralph Cipriano. Uh, a couple of things before we leave here. Um, the interview that I did, which I've already referenced in this podcast, you got to check out in light of what Ralph just said. Uh, it's at freespeechbroadcasting.com, and it's also at framingpaterno.com where I do an adversarial interview with a Boston radio station for about uh, about 45 minutes of it is on this particular topic. Uh, just listen, when you when you do listen to it, to the utter absurdity of the other side's argument. They have none. It's all emotion. And logic and facts meant nothing in this case. And again, everything you need to know about the Penn State element of this is at framingpaterno.com. By the way, also at freespeechbroadcasting.com. Two other columns I wrote this week that you'll find of interest. One is on the mostly disregarded because of other news revelations that came out this week that Bill O'Reilly of Fox News Channel has been accused of sexually harassing a a former Fox News Channel hostess, if you will, And some very, I think, interesting and unique perspectives on the TV news business, from my experience in the TV news business, as to why those kind of allegations are uh, commonplace within TV news, especially at the level of Bill O'Reilly. So find that at freespeechbroadcasting.com, as well as one other column I wrote for Mediate, which deals with uh, Meryl Streep's comments about Donald Trump at the Golden Globe. So a whole bunch of stuff. Uh, that I hope you'll find of interest at freespeechbroadcasting.com. If you have enjoyed this podcast, and I hope you have because we do this for free, and I think it's a heck of a podcast, we ask only two things. Just tell other people, whether word of mouth or via social media, Twitter, Facebook, whatever it is, share the podcast so other people can hear it. And if you're one of those people who sleeps, and when you sleep, you use sheets, make sure you listen to this incredibly important message. Until next week, I'm John Ziegler
0: coffee oh thanks how did you sleep like a baby i don't want to get out of bed ever these sheets are mm, incredibly soft what did you say they're called again performance bedding by sheiks (laughs) performance bedding (laughs) yeah they're made from super high-tech performance fabric they're incredibly breathable so you're not waking up at night throwing covers off and then an hour later throwing them back on huh no wonder i slept so good since i started using sheiks i sleep like a baby No more sweaty nights for me. No? Well. (laughs) Well, I like them because they're soft. They feel like mm, silk. Performance fabric, huh? Maybe we should, oh, I don't know. Try them out again. (laughs) (laughs) Comfort and performance for better sleep. That's Sheiks. S-H-E-E-X. Sheiks. Try Sheiks for 30 nights risk-free. Go to sleepcoolnow.com. Use promo code 1212 and get $40 off any sheet set. That's sleepcoolnow.com, promo code 1212 sleepcoolnow.com 1212.